My name's Daniel. Merry Christmas. Excited to be with you guys. Hey, it is our final week in a Christmas series that we have been doing over the course of the past three weeks entitled Unbelievable, A Christmas for Seekers and Skeptics. And over the course of the last two weeks, if you haven't been with us, that's okay. But over the course of the past two weeks, we really have been navigating very deep and very big questions about Christianity. I mean, we've been talking about in week one, can we really believe in God? A really big question. We ask deep questions that our culture has about Christianity, about God, about science, about hypocrisy. In week two, we, we ask the big question, can we really believe and trust the Bible? And we ask questions about, you know, the historicity of the Bible and morality and faith. And if you're like me, Sometimes a lot of those questions get really overwhelming. And when you navigate those deep questions, questions we all have, you can get so caught up in them that you can lose sight of actually what's most important. You can lose sight of something that is very obvious in front of you. It reminds me of uh, the show Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes and, you know, his sidekick Watson, if you're familiar with that show. Uh, Sherlock Holmes in, in one episode is sitting next to Watson and they're camping under the evening stars. It's during the middle of the summer and, you know, Sherlock Holmes opens his eyes in the middle of the night. He, he shakes the sleep from his eyes and he's looking up at the stars and he nudges Watson and says, Watson, look up at the night sky. What do you see? And Watson replies, well, I see stars, dear Holmes. Yeah, but what does it mean, says Sherlock. And Holmes thinks about it for a while. He says, well, it, it, you know, it means there's gaseous balls of light that are galaxies away and that the cosmos is infinite in size. And Sherlock asks, no, but what does it mean, Holmes? And Holmes looks at Sherlock again and scratches his head. And he says, well, it means that we're in the northern hemisphere based on the visible constellations. No, but what does it mean, says Sherlock. Well, astrologers tell us that we're under the sign of Leo and the planets Jupiter and Saturn are almost in alignment. But what does it mean, says Sherlock Holmes. And Watson looks at him exasperated and says, my dear Holmes, I've given you three different answers. What more could you possibly want to know? He says, Watson, here's what it means. Somebody has obviously stolen our tent, you blithering idiot. We're a lot like Watson, aren't we? We can get so caught up in the deep, the big theological and philosophical questions, thinking about God in general or the Bible in general, we can overlook what's right in front of us. And what's right in front of us on December 24th is Christmas. And so today, tonight, we're going to focus on that. And we're going to ask this final question in this series, can we really believe in Jesus? Can we really believe in him? The man who was born some 2,000 years ago, the man whom Christmas is all about. And I want to answer that question in two parts tonight. Two parts. The first part, I'm going to answer in the affirmative and say we can believe in Jesus because of who he is. And then in the second part, I'm going to answer we can really believe in Jesus because of what he's come to do. So that's our trajectory. That's our roadmap tonight. But before that, let's pray and then we'll dive into our teaching. Dear God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the privilege it is to worship you tonight, for the privilege it is to be known by you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for 
this time and we ask as we open up the scriptures and we look at the word that you've given us that you would open our eyes, you'd open up our hearts to really understand what it is you have to speak to us. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. So point one, part one, we can believe in Jesus because of who he is. And really everything you need to know about Jesus is found in the account of his birth. And we read in the account of his birth that Jesus Christ, his birth took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed, her name was Mary. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So this whole account is leading to this last point. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's the first miraculous claim about who Jesus is. It's that Jesus was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago to the Virgin Mary. And it's a hard thing for us to wrap our mind around that. It's a hard thing for us to believe that. In fact, one author, his name is uh, Arif Ahmed, He's a Cambridge professor, and he kind of expressed the sentiment many of us have about this miraculous claim. He wrote, I don't believe in stories like the virgin birth for the same reason I don't believe in Father Christmas. There just came a time in my life when I stopped believing in miracles. Now, I think that is a good summary of how many of us view the virgin birth. It is an unbelievable, miraculous claim. But I don't think that we can dismiss it that quickly, as if it was just something that happened a long time ago, or it's the stuff of a fanciful tale. I don't think it's that, and I don't think we can dismiss it. And here's why. See, when you read this account of the birth of Jesus, it's clear, crystal clear, who's responsible for Jesus' birth. It's the Holy Spirit. You probably noticed this as we were reading through this passage. The Holy Spirit is mentioned twice. The author who's writing this account, his name is Matthew. He said, remember this, this, what I said earlier, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Later on, the angel, remember, visits Joseph, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And if you were a part of the first audience, whoever would have heard this message, you would have heard that term, Holy Spirit, and your mind immediately would have went to Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, and it would have went to the first pages of the Bible. In fact, it would have gone to the very first verses of the Bible. 
And that's Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You, you might be familiar with this account. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And who was there? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So don't you see that Spirit of God mentioned here, present at the beginning of creation, the Spirit who brought light out of darkness, the Spirit who separated sea below and sky above, the Spirit who formed every molecule, every quirk, every element, every living creature, and every star in the universe, that same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is at work in the birth of Jesus as well. Now, that might not mean much to you, but think about it. Think about it with me. Before the miraculous claim that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, is this even more miraculous claim that there is one God who by his spirit created the entire cosmos? If God could create an entire cosmos filled with dark matter and black holes and stars and planets and galaxies, isn't it possible that that God could also make one baby without a human father? Isn't that possible? Anybody uh, seen this video that's going around YouTube recently of Eli Manning? And Eli Manning, the all-time, one of the all-time greatest quarterbacks, he was a guy who won two Super Bowls. He was a two-time Super Bowl MVP, four-time Pro Bowler, going down probably as one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Well, he goes and he tries out for a college football team at Penn State. Anybody seen this? He goes and he steps onto the field, and the coaches are asking him if, if he can do basic drills. They have him run the 40-yard dash, which every football player does. They have him throw simple passes. They have him do simple footwork drills. And obviously... Here's one of the greatest quarterbacks in human history. Obviously, he can do these basic things, can't he? This is Eli Manning. Well, God is no different in this scenario that we read in the account of Jesus' birth. God is no different. It's perfectly reasonable to believe if God can create an entire universe which spans over 14 billion light years across, probably more than that, in fact, he can also make one baby without a human father. And in fact, I want to challenge you to consider this tonight. I would claim that if you don't believe in the miraculous claims that the Bible makes about creation, if you don't believe in this miraculous claim of the virgin birth, I do want to say it's probably likely that you believe in something that's even more miraculous, you just don't know it. See, if you don't believe in God's miraculous work at creation, then you believe that the universe, the cosmos, the galaxies, the stars, the planets, everything that exists came from nothing. That it came from nowhere, that it came together by chance, without reason, without cause, and without purpose. And friends, that is a miracle. That is an utter astounding miracle, an entire universe from nothing at all. And I challenge you to consider this thought that one author wrote. He said, quote, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Those who are secular believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. See, the first miraculous claim about who Jesus is is that he was conceived 
by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. But the second, and this is maybe, I know I'm adding miraculous claim on top of miraculous claim here, but the second, maybe even more miraculous claim is the second half of verse 23 in the account of Jesus' birth. It says, remember, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Jesus is not just born of a virgin. He's also Emmanuel. He's God with us. Jesus is God himself. The same God who named and numbered the stars of heaven, the same God who designed deserts, mountains, and seas, the same God who fashioned every inch of the earth we walk on, that God became a human being 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. Tim Keller, who's a pastor, he used to live in New York City, and he's also a best-selling author. In fact, one of his books is on the book table outside, and you're free to pick it up as you leave. It's called A Reason for God. And in that book, he, he reminds us of this really phenomenal truth about Jesus and about the Bible. He says that only Buddha and Jesus so impressed their modern contemporaries that they were asking not just, who are you? But they were also asking, what are you? What order of being do you belong to? What species do you represent? The biggest difference, though, was that Buddha asserted with great clarity and emphasis that he was not a god or even some angelic or divine being. But Jesus repeatedly and continually claimed to be the god, the creator of the universe. From his birth to his death, Jesus said he is God. And there's a number of places that you see this throughout the New Testament, throughout the writings of Jesus' earliest followers. The first one to write about it was John. And John said, this is the lip, on the lips of Jesus where he's speaking to people and he said, quote, if you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus saying, hey, to know me is to know God the Father. Jesus said to see him was to see God as well. He said this later on in his life. He said, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. He sees the God who sent me into the world. But maybe the most clear statement of Jesus about who he is, he doesn't leave any room for interpretation. He says, quote, I and the Father are one. From Jesus' birth through his life to his death, Jesus said that he was not just man, but he was the God-man. He said that he was not just flesh and bone, he was God in the flesh, God incarnate. He went on to say that he was not just with us, he was Emmanuel, God with us. And that is the most miraculous claim of Christmas. See, the biggest miracle is not that God could you know, somehow conceive a child through a virgin woman. No, the bigger miracle is that the eternal God actually became temporal and limited. He became finite. The God who is infinitely powerful and created billions of stars decided to become vulnerable and weak and finite. The bigger miracle is that God 
who in splendor and majesty created the aurora borealis, created the northern lights. He's the God who created the crown nebula, the Milky Way out there, decided in love to lay aside his majesty and come as a human being down here to be God with us. When my wife and I lived in Nashville, we had our first child. His name's Eli. And it was a really exciting time. If you've had any children, you know having a child is really exciting. But before that, we were members at a church and one of the pastors on staff, his name was Eric. And I would have lunch from time to time with Eric. Eric was a great guy, but he was Southern. He was from Georgia. And during our lunches, right before I would leave, he would always say, hey, Daniel, I love you, man. I love you. And at first I thought, He said that because, you know, he's a southern weirdo, and like most people from the south, he's just a little bit off, right? No offense. Roll Tide or or something like that. (laughs) Or War Eagle, I don't know. But then we had our first child. We had Eli. And as soon as we had Eli, the doctors were doing tests. They would prick him in the heel and measure his blood sugar levels. And for the first couple of tests, they were very low in the 20s and then in the 10s. And then eventually, even though we were feeding him, they're testing his blood sugar levels and they're repeatedly showing up zero. And so we were concerned. We're not sure what's going on. I actually left to go get lunch. But when I returned from lunch, Eli was gone. They had taken Eli to the neonative intensive care unit, the NICU, and We went to go see him, my wife and I, and the first time that we saw him, after we had once held him in his arms, not plugged up to anything, he had an IV in his forehead, and he had a feeding tube down his throat. And we didn't know if we were going to bring home our very first child. And it was in that moment where we're sitting there, we're afraid, we're asking God, why are we going through this? What's going on? We're uncertain about what the future might hold. We heard a knock at the door. We opened the door, and it was Eric. Eric. It was Eric, and he visited us when we were afraid and scared, and it was at that moment that I realized why Eric kept saying, I love you, man. The reason he did is because he really did. He really did love me and Hannah so much that he was willing to be with us in our darkest moment as new parents when we were afraid, when we were confused, when we were in pain. He came to be with us. And this is kind of how parenting is. We now have four kids, and we're so glad. We were finally glad to take Eli home. We have four now, and sometimes we'll lay awake at night, and we're wondering, can we just give one or two of them away, right? <laughs> but, but we love our kids, and we know that we have people that love us because they are there for us. They come to be with us in those times. We can really believe in Jesus for that same reason. Because that is who he is. He's the one conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, in humility, down here in our pain and in our darkness. That's the God of the Bible, the God Jesus Christ. And again, you might think that's too miraculous. You might think that that is an outlandish claim to think that God became a human being and that Jesus was truly God. You might think Jesus was simply a a moral example for life, a good, positive figure, but you can't believe that he's truly God. And if that's you, again, I challenge you to consider something tonight, and maybe you've never considered it for any portion of your life. C.S. Lewis, who is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, he was also a professor of literature at Cambridge and Oxford, he held that similar view about Jesus, that Jesus was just a good moral example, that he was just a good teacher, But that was until he really considered the claims that Jesus made. 
See, Jesus makes the claim to be God. And upon reflecting on that, Lewis concluded, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not simply be a good teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a liar on the level of the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a liar. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon lunatic. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a liar. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is the Lord God. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. You have to put Jesus in one of those camps. He is either Emmanuel, God with us, as Matthew says, he is either an unhinged lunatic, or he is a charlatan liar. And if he is truly Lord and God, then I challenge you to consider, does your life reflect that reality? Does your life Reflect that truth. Do you really honor Jesus as if he is God or is he merely someone you think of occasionally around December 24th? Jesus is Emmanuel. He's Emmanuel. He is the God-man. We can really believe in him. He is the one born of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That brings us to part two. That was part one. We can really believe in Jesus because of who he is, but also... We can believe in Jesus because of what he came to do on earth. Do you remember what the angel of the Lord said to Joseph? Remember when Joseph was dreaming, this angel appears to him. And in the account of Jesus' birth, do you remember? It, it said this. It said the angel of the Lord told Joseph to name the child Jesus. That means God is salvation. And he goes on to explain because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus came to do, and that's why we can really believe in Jesus, because his main purpose in becoming Emmanuel was to save sinners. When I was first exploring Christianity, this was about 15 years ago, um, this was one of the most difficult things to swallow about what the Bible taught, about what Christians believed. It was this idea that me, a normal, kind of, a normal average, seemingly nice person like myself could be a sinner. I know it's hard to believe, right? This idea that I was born sinful and that I couldn't elude being a sinner by being moral or religious or good enough. And to put it mildly is the best thing that you can say about the Bible calling us sinners because the Bible actually goes several steps further than that. The Bible actually says our core problem, the reason that we even do sin in the first place is at a heart level, each and every one of us is born into the world with a hatred toward God. That we are actually people who are born in rebellion and hate God. And this is repeated over and over and over in the Bible. In fact, Jesus said this multiple times as well. Jesus once said to people who were his followers, he, he told them, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. 
Jesus also later on in this same account, this same speech, he's talking about how he performed these great miracles, these great works, but people saw them and they didn't respond with love and faith and devotion. He says, but now they've seen, they've seen my works and hated both me and my father. And I have to admit, that was, that was tough to swallow. That was tough to swallow because I could admit that I'd done things wrong. I could admit that I had a hard time at, you know, following God, but I had the hardest time swallowing this idea that I hated God. That seemed like an overstatement. But as I thought about it more, what Jesus actually said started to make a lot of sense. In fact, what did I do with the people I hated? Again, I know it's hard to believe that I could hate anybody, but I have a list, okay? Some of you might be on it. I don't know yet. It's hard to imagine, but think of it in your own life. Those, those people that you hate, what do you do with them? Do you never talk to them? Do you never listen to them? Do you never ask them for help? I bet you never seek them out. You never thank them or affirm them or give them your affection. You never want to be around them. In essence, to those whom you hate, you live as if they don't exist. And that's the moment that I realized that that's what I've been doing to God my entire life and to Jesus my entire life. I lived my life never asking for his help, never seeking him out, never thanking him or praising him, never listening to him or caring to acknowledge him. In short, I was living as if God didn't even exist. I was living as if I was the only one who had control over my life. That was and still is my core problem, that I am a sinner, but it still is true as it was then. Merry Christmas. Have a good night. And I want to close with this. I, I want to offer you, offer you a last challenge. I want to challenge you to consider this final thought with me tonight. Throughout this series, I have tried to show us that we can really believe in God, that we can really believe in the Bible, that we can really believe in Jesus, as I've shown us tonight. And it's completely reasonable to do so. But when you look at what this account of Jesus' birth says, what this announce, angel announces to Joseph is truly unbelievable. That Emmanuel would come to save us from our sins, that God would come in the person of Jesus to save sinners. Friends, that is actually unbelievable. Believable. 33 years after this account of Jesus' birth, 33 years after his birth in Bethlehem, Jesus would be crucified 33 years later in Jerusalem. And we read that Jesus died on the cross in Jerusalem. And when you look at that from one angle, it appears as if the religious leaders and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, they were just putting an innocent man to death. But we know, based on what we read here, that that was from another angle, the plan of God from all along. That, that was Jesus' primary mission on earth. For Emmanuel, God with us, to sacrifice himself for sinners. For Jesus, which means God is salvation, to take our hatred upon himself and earn salvation for us, to take the punishment and judgment our sins deserve. He is Emmanuel, God with us, born to die. I was watching this Mother's Day video. This was uh, just a couple of days ago, in fact. And it was a Mother's Day video from two girls. The first girl's name was Chloe. She was seven years old when this incident happened to her, and her sister's name was Annie. They had been grown up at this point. 
but they're recounting this time that was really pivotal in their past. Chloe and Annie are holding up these signs telling the story about how one day their mom saved their life. They said that they had rented a log cabin when they were uh, seven and five years old. They had driven up to the mountains in this beautiful cabin overlooking this huge valley over this big, huge cliff. And they remember sitting in the car as they pulled up to this cabin Their grandparents got out of the car, their parents got out of the car, and they went to the front door of the cabin to sign paperwork. And even though the mom had the keys, the car wasn't on, somehow the parking brake popped and the car started lurching forward. And the girls say that it was at that moment that the mom did something absolutely unthinkable. The mom ran in front of the SUV and started pushing back on the front of the SUV, trying with all her might, determined to stop it. And the girls say, we remember the look on her face right before she went under. And we remember feeling the bump as we ran over her body. They go on to say, that bump saved our lives. It slowed the car down just enough for my grandpa to run up beside it and pull the emergency brake right before we went over the cliff. The weight of the SUV on my mother's body should have killed her, but by some miracle of miracles, by something unbelievable, it didn't. But it did break her back. She's paralyzed from the waist down and she will never walk again. And as they end the video with tears in their eyes, you know, they're showing this to their mom on Mother's Day, they're talking about how that mom never missed a moment of those girls' life. They went to, she went to soccer games. She went to recitals. She showed up for parent-teacher conferences. And she said that she wouldn't change it for the world because her three kids are alive and with her to this day. And they close by saying this. She taught us from a young age that when people stare at us because of her in the wheelchair, that we should hold our heads high and just stare back and remember this is how much Her mother loves them. Friends, we see that same truth in the cross of Jesus for what he came to do. At the cross, we see the unbelievably good news that Jesus, Emmanuel, so loved sinners that he was willing to be their salvation. Jesus so loved sinners that he was willing to sacrifice himself so that we might also stare at the cross as the sign of what Jesus came to do. And no, this is how much God loves me. And even though, friends, that is truly unbelievable, it is nonetheless true. My kids, before I put them to bed at night, remember I have four kids, I've trained them to do this thing. I sit them down in their bed and, you know, I do a little prayer with them. And then I I ask them, who loves you? They say, Dada. And then I say, who loves you more than Dada? And they say, well, of course, Mama. I say, okay, that's true, but who loves you more than mama and dada? And they say, they've been trained to say, Jesus. Jesus loves me more than mom, loves me dad, because Jesus, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified under Pontius Pilate because he loves us. It is the miracle of Christmas. It is truly unbelievable. And now as we close, I'd like us all bow our heads, and I'd like to... Just pray for us, if, if you could. Bow your heads as we pray. And before we do pray, I, I'd like to ask, if there, if there are any people who are here tonight and you want to respond to this unbelievably good news of who Jesus is and what he came to do for you, if, if you're here and maybe for the first time 
you want to believe in Jesus and, and place your faith and trust in him, if you want to follow him tonight for the rest of your life, then again, with eyes closed, if that's you would, you, would you respond by raising your hand? I would love to pray for you if that's the case. If that's you, would, would you raise your hand? Okay, I see you. Okay, I see you guys there. Good. Good, let me pray as we close out. Heavenly Father, we pray that for those who place their faith in you, we know that there is eternal life secured by the love of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this unbelievably good news that God became flesh to die for our sins. And God, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus tonight, we pray that you would fill them with your spirit. We pray that they would trust your promise that those who trust in you and those who have faith in you have forgiveness of sins. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. And would you bring your salvation to bear in all of our lives? We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.